Oh, there's still music. Yeah, that's great. I like it. I think it's like watermark or something, but. Okay, somebody raised, yes, Susan. Right, and I will talk about that, but I think essentially the results are that um, that they, well, I'm not going to answer that just yet. I want to make sure, I know it's in here, so uh, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm answering that correctly. So, uh, but if I don't answer it, let's come back to it. Any other questions? Yes, Sherilyn. What is Paul implying about our future? And I'm, I'm going to touch on that a little bit. But basically what he implicitly in that, more explicitly in the verses that Susan was talking about, but implicitly in verses 9 through 11 where he says, where he talks about the exaltation of Jesus, is that's, that's where we're going to be someday. You know, and, and we're not going to be exalted in the same sense as Jesus, but we're going to be with him. And, and we're going to be, you know, in glorified bodies and all that. And so... Again, this is an encouragement to them as they face, uh, as they face um, persecution to fix their eyes on that. It's, it's more implicit, but it's definitely there. Any other questions? Uh, yes, Carol. Yeah, what happened? And, I, I, and I'm not completely going to talk about that either uh, because he already was. King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, it, it's not like he could become higher than he already was before he humbled himself to come to earth. Uh, but it's going to be made evident to everyone. But what, what has always been, all people will know. That his, that his exalted glory will be made known. Good question. Any other questions? I was asked um, after last week's study uh, about what is the day of the Lord, and maybe some of you also had that question, and I answered it very poorly, uh, I think. Uh, and so I just wanted to clear that up, uh, because Paul, in last week's lesson, kind of interchangeably talks about death and the day of the Lord, and is the day of the Lord when we die, or is it later? Uh, and, and the day of the Lord is the final day when all, all people stand before God. Uh, and, and we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is a different thing because we're saved. Um, but this is what's described in Revelation. Now, there, there are a number of events that lead up to that. In, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the rapture, a time when Christians will be taken uh, out of this earth. At the, and, and he says, those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will meet them together in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Uh, and so some people will die, uh, and some people will be raptured. And then... And whether the tribulation starts before that rapture or in the middle of it or after it, it depends on who you talk to. So we're not going to get into that. And I'm not teaching Revelation, so it doesn't matter. But, um, but then there, there will be a time of tribulation. And at the end of that time of tribulation, Jesus will return to earth. Uh, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And, and what is described at the end of Revelation, when all people are judged and, and when uh, those who are in Christ are uh, then worshiping around the throne. That, that is the day of Christ, the day when all uh, men will be judged at the end. That doesn't happen when we die. Uh, it is, uh, there is a time between that. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet, and a whole lot of people uh, have died. 
Uh, however, for Paul, when he's talking interchangeably between his death and the day of the Lord, death is the last hurdle for Paul or for any of us to face before that time. That's the last thing that we will have to go through before that time. But then you might say, okay, then what does happen? And that's a really tough question. And again, you would get different answers from, from different people. I'm just going to tell you what I know. And what I know is that Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What that means, how that looks before we have our resurrected bodies, I don't know. And I'm not sure we're supposed to know. And I'm not sure we're supposed to obsess on all that. Um, I think we're just supposed to trust that God does know. And it'll all work out. And at some point, we'll be going, oh, yeah, sure. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes ever. C.S. Lewis said the first thing we're going to say when we get to heaven is, of course. <laughs> uh, and then it will all make sense. So anyway, I hope that's a better answer to, uh, to that question. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for this portion of scripture that has challenged me, that has encouraged me, that has broken me this week, Father. I just pray that you would break all of us through the power of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, we're going to begin, but I just need to tell you, I've been doing this for 10 years. I don't know that a portion of scripture has ever had the impact on me that this has had this week. I've been in tears. I've been praising. I've been literally standing at my computer, sitting at my computer going like this, hoping that none of my family walks in. This has been an amazing experience for me. It's truly one of those weeks when I say, it really doesn't matter if any of y'all showed up because God did something in me this week. And so I, I pray that that will come through to you. Paul begins this portion of scripture by saying, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'm going to stop there for a minute because I want to look back now. Whatever happens, what's he talking about? Remember in verses 21 through 26, Paul has just said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So, so Paul, through these verses, is saying, you know what? I'd really rather die. If it were just up to me, I'd rather go be with Jesus. But it's better for you that I live. And so convinced that it's better for you, I think I'm going to live and, I, and return to you uh, and see you again. But whatever happens... Whether, whether I live or whether I die, whether I return to you or whether I don't, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now that, um, that verse, that first part of, of verse 27, is really a heading, is, is like a thesis statement for everything we're going to talk about today. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of of the gospel. In fact, it's, it's kind of a thesis statement over everything from here to, to chapter 2, verse 18, which we won't get to uh, 12 through 18 until next week. It's also the first command in a long string of commands in the letter to the Philippians throughout the letter. And it also marks a transition. Paul is transitioning here from his own situation, which he really talked about the situation with the gospel, what was happening with the gospel. He transitions from his own situation to the circumstances of the Philippians. So he's been talking about himself. Do I want to live? Do I want to die? I don't know. It's better for you. And then he says, but whatever happens, you, you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he's turning and addressing 
the Philippian situation. Now, if we just, if we kind of back out and take the long view of these verses, uh, and, and actually from 127 to 218, but we'll get to 212 to 218 next week. Paul's primary concern in these verses that we're going to look at today is the Philippians' attitude toward one another, toward one another, their attitudes toward one another, specifically that they would put the interests of others ahead of their own. And, and that's the, the main point of Philippians 1.27 to 2.4, that they would be selfless, that they would put the interests of others ahead of their own. And then he's going to turn in, in Philippians 2.5 through 11 and, and tell them that he wants them to exhibit humility by following the example of Christ. He's going to hold up Christ and say, look at the humility of Christ. You have the same attitude as he did. And selflessness and humility are two characteristics that would ward off quarreling, wouldn't it? When we are selfless, when we are humble, we are much less likely to quarrel. And that was happening in the church. Remember these two fine women, Euodia and Syntyche, got their 15 minutes of biblical fame because they were fighting with one another uh, in Philippi. And apparently that argument infected the whole church. And so, so much of what Paul is talking about in Philippians is be unified, be humble, treat one another uh, as more important as yourself. Now, there's another concern that Paul has in this uh, portion that we're studying today, and that is that the Philippians remain steadfast, that they stand firm, both in the midst of persecution from the outside and against divisive forces, against dissension and disunity from the inside. And so he's going to give a very vivid picture of their unity as they stand firm, contending as one man for the gospel. So let's uh, read through then uh, all of 27 through 30. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This, this, these first two words are very interesting. Actually, the whole thing is, obviously. But he says, conduct yourselves. That word is actually the P word over here. And, and it's politeuste or something like that. Polit. What word in English? Politis. It literally, I know, I know. It literally means to have one's citizenship or home in something. Isn't that interesting? That's what it literally means. And so Paul is saying to them, as Roman citizens, as proud Roman citizens, many of whom were retired soldiers, he's saying, as proud as you are of your Roman citizenship, remember that you are first and foremost citizens of heaven. So conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. That is your primary loyalty, your first loyalty, 
And not only their first loyalty, but our first loyalty is to God. Not to the empire, not to the state. I needed to read that a week before the election. Our first loyalty is to God. So live in a way, Paul says, that reflects that primary loyalty. In other words, live according to the gospel, not according to society's standards. Uh, and that's a good word for us. So throughout these verses, Paul is giving us a very vivid picture of unity, especially in the face of opposition. He's saying, stand firm in one spirit. Now, the NIV, obviously, because it doesn't capitalize spirit there, is saying, stand firm in your human spirit. But others would say that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit there. So is he saying, stand firm in spirit together in, in human spirit, or is he saying stand firm in, together in the Holy Spirit? I, I believe that he left this intentionally vague because the truth is that the only way we can stand firm in human spirit is because of the Holy Spirit, because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. So stand firm by the power of the Holy Spirit in one spirit for the gospel. And then he says, stand as standing firm as one man contending for the gospel. Those words as, bless you, those words as one man literally mean in one soul. Stand firm in one soul. Stand firm in one spirit and in one soul. What a strong picture of unity, completely united together, both in spirit and in soul for the gospel. Paul's point here then is he is saying be united in spirit because you have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit and be united in soul for the cause of the gospel. That should be your ultimate focus, to remain united and contend for the gospel. Now, the results of that then. What, what are the results of that unity? First of all, he says it would be a sign to them those that are persecuting them, of their destruction. But how can that be? I mean, if it's a sign to them, if they realize they're going to be destroyed for what they're doing, wouldn't they stop doing it? And, and so I don't think that Paul is saying that they're going to go, oops, I'm going to be destroyed while I'm going to keep doing this. Um, I think what he's saying is it, it will be a sign in respect to them that they will be destroyed. In other words, it will be a sign that, that you are able to perceive because you have eyes to see and ears to hear that for anyone who has the ability to perceive, they'll understand that, that they will be destroyed, that they will be judged for how they have persecuted the church. So that's the first thing. It will be a sign with respect to them that they're going to be destroyed unless they come to know Christ. And then secondly, it will be a sign to the Philippians of their own salvation. That on the final day, on the day of Christ Jesus, they will be saved. And we talked about that last week, that yes, we are saved, but the consummation, the finality of that awaits us um, someday. But it's been assured, and we can be assured of it now. So the purpose of, of verse 28 is to encourage the Philippians, particularly as they face persecution, particularly as they face uh, outside forces that are attacking them, to, to say, you know what? You will win. Persevere. Stand firm. 
It won't always be this way. In the end, you will win. Keep the end in mind. And he'll do this again implicitly when he talks about the exaltation of Jesus in, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And then he says that this will be a sign to you that you will be saved, and that by God. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean, and that by God? Well, first of all, Paul is saying, look, you're responsible for how you act. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You're responsible to live as citizens of heaven, to persevere, to be unified, to contend for the gospel. Um, and, and, and all of which is evidence that they are and will be saved. But he wants to make sure that the Philippians don't think that that's how they're saved. And so he says, and that by God. But I, I read, and I love his name. I would, I, I'd just like to say his name all the time. Can I say his name? Doctor? He's Dr. Moises Silva. <laughs> Isn't that great? Moises. Anyway, I think it's Moses, but I think it's Moses in Spanish. Um, anyway. <laughs> He says, you know what, Paul isn't just talking about their salvation here. He's saying, look, not just your salvation, but the ability to persevere, the, the ability to stand firm, the ability to stay unified are all because of God's work in you. You are responsible to live according to God, but all of it is from beginning to end is God's work. So essentially what he's saying is it is by God's grace that you are saved. And it is by God's grace that you stand firm, and it is by God's grace that you persevere, and it is by God's grace that you can remain united. All of it by God. Now, in these verses, Paul talks about suffering, and he has a very interesting, different view of suffering than we have. He says that it is granted to you. It's a gift to suffer. As my three-year-old niece would say, what the heck? <laughs> How can that be? How can suffering be a gift? That's how Paul used it. And, and he considered it a privilege, a gift, to suffer for the cause of Christ. Uh, and, and so how then? How is that a gift? Suffering is a gift because, first of all, it confirms our salvation. It confirms that we are in Christ. And actually, it grows us up in it, too. Um, it, it's part of our sanctification. I'll tell you some of the people whose faith I respect and admire most are people who have been through horrible things that I would never want to go through. But boy, they understand God's encouragement, that God is right with them through that, that God has supported them and uplifted them through that because they have experienced suffering. Secondly, it's a gift because through suffering, we are able to identify with the suffering of Christ. It allows us to identify with Christ's own suffering. I wish I had time to delve into this more, um, but uh, because this, this is not how we view suffering. I just want to make three brief points on Paul's view of suffering so that we don't misunderstand this. The first is that Paul is actually here specifically talking about suffering for the cause of Christ, suffering on behalf of the gospel or for the gospel which really isn't our experience, is it? There are not too many of us that's having, you know, somebody come in. I mean, the closest I came was when Miller North told, told my FCA kids that they couldn't wear their FCA shirts to school, and I went in, and they said, okay, they can. Uh, so that's not really, nobody put me in jail, you know. Nobody fired me, even. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't, that's not our experience. It is, however, the experience of believers all over the world. And we, as a free church, 
need to stand with those who really truly are suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, but then, is that the only suffering Paul has in mind here? Is this, or do we just have to write this off and say, well, because I don't suffer for the cause of Christ, this doesn't apply to me. Actually, I think it does, in a sense. And, and again, Moises Silva. I love what he said about this. He said, the important question arises whether or not physical persecutions or afflictions suffered as a direct result of the believer's Christian identity are the only experiences that qualify as suffering for Christ. Neither this passage nor the New Testament more generally gives an explicit and unequivocal answer to that question. We may consider, however, that for the person whose life is committed in its totality to the service of Christ, every affliction and every frustration becomes an obstacle to fulfilling the goal of serving Christ. And so in some sense, yeah, I think that suffering as a Christian can be suffering for Christ. The second point I'd like to make with this is that, um, that Paul is not saying that suffering is good. He's not saying seek it out. He's not saying, you know, hey, yeah, sign up for Suffering 101. That's a great thing. He's not saying that it is good. But he is saying that when we suffer, God will comfort us. And that God can, in fact, bring good things out of suffering in our lives and in the, in the li lives of people around us. And then the third thing I'd say about Paul's view of suffering is that, that not only is he not saying that it's not good, but he is also not saying that God is the author of suffering, that God is the one bringing suffering. If you notice here, he puts the blame squarely on the shoulders of those who are persecuting Christians and Philippians. He's not saying God is causing you to suffer. He's saying these people who are persecuting you are causing you to suffer, and they will be judged for it. In fact, they will be destroyed. So he is placing the blame squarely on those who are the cause of the suffering. Um, but uh, at the same time, God can bring good out of it. In fact, I love what Joseph said at the end when his brothers were like, hey, we're really sorry we threw you in that pit and we caused all that suffering. You know, we shouldn't have done any. And we told daddy you died. and That was really bad. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you know what, it's okay, guys, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph's brothers were responsible for what they did to Joseph, but God saved nations through it. Not that what happened to Joseph was good, but God caused good to come out of it. And then at the end here, Paul is comparing their experience with suffering with his own. He's identifying with them in their suffering. He's telling them, look, I understand. I'm going through the same stuff. Stand firm as I am standing firm that the gospel might advance. And then beginning in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about uh, standing united in the face of dissension from within the church, in quarrels within the church. And he says... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Actually, the first two words of this passage are if, therefore. The NIV leaves the therefore untranslated. So Paul is connecting these verses with what's just happened. 
If, therefore, you have any encouragement, what is that connection? Paul is saying that they are to stand firm as one man for the gospel. Therefore, in order to do that, they must be unified, they must be humble, and they must be selfless. And they must put the interests of others ahead of themselves. In other words, more specifically, if they're going to accomplish standing firm for the gospel, they must be unified in mind and love and soul, and they must be selfless, putting the interests of others ahead of their own. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's not. Yeah, it's not. You know that. Now, this word if is interesting because it's the word E-I, I-E-I, I don't know. But it's the word I in Greek, and it can mean if or it can mean since. And because Paul is not saying, if you have this, don't know if you do, maybe you do, maybe you don't, he's saying because of this, because you already have this. So I think the word since then is a better uh, example of that, so a better translation. So he's saying, since therefore you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since uh, you have comfort in his love, actually the love there, or the his there, is not in um, the Greek. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Um, it, it's a reminder of their mutual affection. Uh, that, and I just told you that since you have comfort, it says since you have comfort in love. Um, the translators added in that his. Actually, I think what Paul is talking about there is his love for the Philippians and their love for him and their love for each other. Since I love you, and you love me, and y'all love each other, make my joy complete and be like-minded. All of his appeal, his entire appeal, is based on two things. First of all, their mutual affection for one another and, for what, and, and based on what God has already done for them in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then he says, okay, so, so since you have, since we together have all these things, since we love each other, since we have comfort, since we have compassion and tenderness, then make my joy complete do, by doing these things. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfishness. Be humble and consider others better than yourselves. Don't just look out for yourself. Look out for others. Here are the two clear points Paul is making through this passage. First, he's saying the Philippians must be united in order to stand firm in the face of persecution and division. They must be united if they are to stand firm. And secondly, he's saying they can only achieve that unity through putting the needs of others ahead of their own. And that requires an attitude of humility. And he's about to give them the best example of that they could ever possibly have. So what Paul's envisions, envisions for the church at Philippi is not a bunch of people walking lockstep with each other and never disagreeing. We are all the same. It's not a Stepford congregation. Uh, Jeff and I have always, we, this is what we say to each other when we disagree. We say, you know, if two people always agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. So, you know, I'm so glad you're not unnecessary, dear, because we don't agree on everything. Uh, that's not what Paul is talking about. 
He's saying what he envisions for the church, as Dr. Thielman says, is that the individuals, despite their differences, are willing to show love for one another through putting their well-being ahead of their own, but for, by putting the other's well-being ahead of their own. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And this, this passage, this is amazing. Just listen to this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'll continue on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, wow, what an amazing passage that is. The point of this passage, this passage has a lot to say about Jesus. It has a lot to say about the incarnation about Christ's pre-existence, about Christ's equality with God, about the nature of his identity, that he was fully God and fully human, and about his costly obedience. It is probably one of the most important passages we have in talking about the incarnation of Jesus. However... The point of this passage is not to teach us about the, the nature of Jesus, of, about his ontology, of who he was in himself, uh, that he was the, in very nature God and all of those things. The point of this passage is to hold him up as an example, as a model of humility. And what a challenging, humbling model that is. Now, there are a lot of theologians that say that this was an early Christian hymn, that Paul didn't write it. Did Paul write it? Did, didn't he write it? Was this original? Was it a hymn? Nobody knows. And it really doesn't matter. Because when we get stuck on stuff like that, or what does this word mean? What does it mean that he, he was in very nature God? What does that mean? We lose the forest for the trees. And I don't want that to happen. This passage is so amazing. I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. What I want to do is study this passage in a way that we are in awe of what our Lord has done on our behalf, and we are inspired to be more like him. So let's begin with verse 5, which says, you should have the attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, actually, a literal, a literal rendering of this verse would say, have this attitude among yourselves. Uh, and it says, have this attitude among yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. So does he mean have the same attitude that was in Christ, that Jesus had? Or does he mean have the kind of attitude you should have because you are in Christ Jesus? Hot debate. I, th I find there's irony in that, that they debate that hotly in this passage where you're supposed to be humble and consider, I don't know. I just, I just, I kind of laughed at that and just chuckled and wrote irony next to that in there. Um, I think that since, obviously, Paul is holding up Jesus as a model here, that the NIV has it right, that we're to have the same attitude as Jesus. But notice the unity there. Literally, it says, have this attitude among yourselves that is in Christ Jesus. Have a united attitude. 
Paul is telling the Philippians to be unified, humble, and unselfish in their relationships with each other, just as Jesus was humble and, uh, and unselfish. And then he goes on to describe that humility in verses 6 through 8. Have, the, uh, have among yourselves the same attitude as, as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was in very nature God. That word for very nature is morphe, which somehow reminds me of Power Rangers. But, um, but it, 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 it means that, that's, that he was God. And the point isn't so much what was God, Jesus' nature if he was in very nature God. The point is, as the next line uh, plainly states, that Jesus is equal with God. That he is God. He is God's equal. Uh, but... But even though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider that something to take advantage of. That word grasp is this word harpagmos, and again, it has an interesting meaning. This is the only place in the entire Greek Bible where this word appears. And in fact, even in all of ancient Greek literature, it's very rare to find this word. But where it is found, it means to take advantage or it can also mean assault, or robbery, or even rape. Hmm, interesting. So what Paul is saying is that even though Christ was equal to God, even though he was the king of the universe, Jesus did not see his equality with God as an opportunity to use it for his own advantage. He didn't see it as something to be exploited. That I'm, I'm the king of the world, serve me. He didn't see it as something to mistreat his subjects with. He saw his equality with God as an opportunity to serve those who were beneath him. To serve us. Not to take advantage of, but to give his life for others. As I was studying this early on this week, I had this thought. If Jesus, the king of the universe, didn't exploit his power and position as God's equal, what possible reason, what would ever give me the right to exploit any paltry power or position or wealth that I have? If anyone ever had a right to exploit his position, it was Jesus, and he laid down that right. He emptied of himself of that right in order to serve us. He made himself, it says, nothing. He made himself of no account. Or some versions say he emptied himself, not of his power, not of his uh, divinity. He emptied himself of his rights as God's equal. And then it tells us how he did that, how he made himself nothing. First, by taking on the very nature of a servant, Morphe again. So get this, Jesus is in very nature God, 
that is his true nature. He is in very nature God. He is God, but he chose instead, he chose instead to take on the very nature of a servant, of a slave on our behalf. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve. Secondly, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing by becoming a human being with all its limitations and difficulty and suffering. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? That would be amazing in and of itself. But he did more. Paul's saying, wait, there's more. He humbled himself even further by being, uh, not only by being found in appearance as a human being, not only by becoming a human being, the king of the universe condescended to come to earth as a mere mortal and a slave, but he humbled himself even further by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul's saying here, how mind-boggling is this? He didn't just die, he died the worst, the most painful, the most horrific, the most ignominious death that one can suffer. came to serve us, the king of the universe. Man, my soul can't help but sing hallelujah to that. That is amazing. And then he ends with Christ's exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here God takes center stage and he responds to Christ's humble obedience by exalting him and by giving him the name that is above every other name. He exalted Jesus to the highest place. Now he, as we already talked about, already had that position. That's who he was from before the creation of the world. But now, someday, everyone's going to know that. Everyone's going to know what this small band of believers in Philippi knew already, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he gave him the name that is above every other name. What is that name? It maybe is Lord. It maybe is Je maybe Jesus is given name. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is whatever that name is, it is the name above every other name. And one day all creation will acknowledge that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul is implicitly reminding the Philippians of what will happen one day. That one day they will live and reign with Jesus in glory. And that is cause for them to rejoice and persevere in the here and now. I already told you that this just, this just really blew me away this week. And so I just want to leave you with my two reactions as I studied this this week. This, this passage hit me harder than a passage has in a long time. I don't know how many times I've read these verses. A lot. I've taught on them before. And it's never struck me like it did today. They, they, two things struck me in a new and fresh way. The first thing that struck me is the enormity, the enormity of Christ's example here. And that this is the example that I'm called to follow. This amazing example of humility and selflessness. Complete humble self-sacrifice. To serve rather than to be served. To voluntarily lay down my rights rather than asserting them. And that's what the king of the universe did for me. And it's what I'm called to do for others every day, at home, 
at church, at work, on the freeway. I am called to humbly lay down my rights for others. And that, that's daunting and that's challenging to me. And to be honest with you, a lot of times it's in the day-to-day mundane things that I have the hardest time doing that, not in the great big things. Uh, ladies, how we treat each other matters. And then secondly, I just found myself over and over again as I was studying, I had to stop. I had to stop to cry. I had to stop to worship. That does not happen to me on a weekly basis. I wish it did, but it happened this week. And I found myself reading this passage with this sort of fresh awe and wonder and saying, this is the God I serve, who being in very nature God didn't consider that something to exploit, but gave himself. That's the Jesus I serve. This is what Frank Thielen says about this passage. Christ went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest precisely because such selfless love was an expression of his deity. Wow. That's the God we serve. It just wants me, it just just makes me want to break out in worship. And, And so as I was studying this, I thought that's the best possible way for us to end today, is in worship. And so because my parents taught me the worst thing they can say is no, I emailed not only two of my favorite people, but honestly, and I'm not plugging them, Rob Hockney, our worship leader, and Mandy Hofer, my dear friend, two of the people I would rather listen to sing than anybody else on the planet. And I just want to invite you to worship as they do this. And you can do that anyway. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to cry, cry. I'll probably be sitting over there crying. But just let them lead us in worship of this amazing God, this amazing Savior that we serve.